0: I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 34. So in the last two podcasts, we explored the history of Silicon Valley, detailing a story that counters the commonly hyped notion that Silicon Valley's success is due to creative genius entrepreneurs inventing computers and new technologies in their garages fueled by venture capital. We saw actually how government funding and research sponsorship was especially fundamental to the success of Silicon Valley. And so I wanted to follow that thread back in history to examine the creation myth of the digital computer. And so in today's episode, we'll do a deep dive into the book Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe, written by George Dyson. Okay, let's dive in. So I've started seeing advertisements for an upcoming movie about Robert Oppenheimer, a theoretical physicist known by some as the father of the atomic bomb. ...for his role in the Manhattan Project, which was the secret project during World War II in the U.S. to design and build the first atomic bomb. I don't know anything about the movie other than it is being directed by Christopher Nolan, so I'm definitely interested in seeing it. But more to the point of today's podcast episode is that the birth of the atomic bomb is more closely related to the birth of the digital computer... Than most people think. So that's one of the reasons why I chose the book Turing's Cathedral, because it shows the linkage between the birth of the computer and the birth of the atomic bomb. The second reason I chose this book, as opposed to another history of the computer book, is because of the author of Turing's Cathedral, George Dyson. George Dyson is a writer mainly of historical nonfiction on topics in the history of technology, such as the book's Darwin, Among the Machines, the Evolution of Global Intelligence, and Analogia, the Emergence of Technology Beyond Programmable Control, and Project Orion, the True Story of the Atomic Spaceship. But I wanted to point out why George's book on the history of computing that we are discussing in today's podcast is notable. And that's because of George's personal connection to key figures in the history of computing. You see, George's father was Freeman Dyson, a theoretical physicist who started working at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton in 1953 and continued there for the rest of his career. Now, it was at the Institute for Advanced Study where John von Neumann and others designed and built some of the first digital computers. So if Robert Oppenheimer is known as the father of the atomic bomb, then perhaps von Neumann can be said to be the father of the computer, among many other accomplishments in pure and applied mathematics, economics, and physics. In fact, the computer you're using to listen to this podcast on was built using what is now called the von Neumann architecture. And so that kind of gets to the creation myth. In the U.S., we say the first computer was built by John von Neumann. Maybe in England, they might point to Alan Turing. So what what is this creation myth? How, How was the computer actually built? And who did it? And so let's find out by looking at this book, Turing's Cathedral, which describes the birth of the modern computer and how this history intersects the history of Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. Now, as I mentioned, George Dyson has a personal link to the Institute where key computer design work was done. The book, Turing's Cathedral, along with lots of pictures of key scientists, engineers, and early computers, even includes a picture of George as a tiny child standing beside his sister, Esther Dyson, at the Institute, or sometimes abbreviated IAS. According to an article I found in The Atlantic, George got the inspiration for this book from a childhood memory. George says he was eight years old at the time, playing with some of the other kids of Other scientists at the Institute, and they found an old barn on the Institute campus that contained one of the earliest computers ever built by John von Neumann. And the kids proceeded to lobotomize this computer, stripping it of all the tubes and circuits. Thus, as a result of this family connection, George was able to interview people who were there at the Institute, and he was able to get access to an extraordinary repository of archives from the families of key figures from that time period, in addition to the archives of his father and George's own personal archives. So I think from that point, Turing's Cathedral tells the history of the computer like no other history, and from a vantage point that's unique and personal. So the basic narrative of the book focuses on John von Neumann's quest to build the Electronic Computer Project, or the EPC. The purpose of this computer mainly was to provide simulation data for the government's efforts to build nuclear weapons during World War II. The calculations were just too many for the human computers to perform by hand using just calculators. Thus, the U.S. government funded the creation of the modern computer, again shattering the myth of Silicon Valley's narrative of the individual genius in a garage creating computers and getting funding from venture capitalists. Though the book focuses on John von Neumann, a main point of the book is that he alone did not create the computer. This gets back to the, the creation myth. He alone did not do it. Alan Turing alone did not do it. So rather, the book shows how he was central in marshalling teams of researchers and scientists to pull together the best ideas of the time to solve this very pressing problem being able to create this computer to do these numerical calculations because it was wartime and the clock was ticking to build this bomb before the Germans. Dyson begins by telling the history of the land in New Jersey where Princeton University and the Institute for Advanced Study would later be built, starting with the arrival of the first colonists who acquired the land from the Native Americans of the area through trade and force. And he says... The land only changed ownership two times since then until we got to Princeton and the Institute. Now, this Institute was envisioned as an independent entity from Princeton, though it was built on lands uh, nearby. The purpose of the Institute was to bring together scholars who could pursue their own research. In other words, the scientists were not told what to study, they were allowed the freedom to pick and follow their own interests. But perhaps more importantly, or of interest to those of us who are teaching in academia, these scientists were allowed to pursue their own research and they didn't have to deal with the burdens of teaching students or other administrative tasks. Albert Einstein was awarded the Institute's second professorship, soon followed by von Neumann and others. By the mid-1930s, the Institute had schools of mathematics, economics and politics, and humanistic studies. So John von Neumann was an immigrant to the United States from Hungary, fleeing the anti-Semitism of the Nazi German era. And in fact, the Institute for Advanced Study received a lot of the fleeing scientists from Europe at that time. So in some sense, uh, the Institute was a refuge for the brilliant minds of Europe who uh, had no other place to go. So it was a real win for the United States and uh, their immigration policy, allowing these fleeing scientists to enter the country. Now, von Neumann was what today we might call a polymath. He was fluent in a variety of qualitative and quantitative modes of thought, and he succeeded in understanding, influencing, and contributing to research in multiple fields, from pure mathematics to applied engineering to economics. More importantly, he was able to influence not only the researchers, but also the administrators at the university who opposed the idea of of a computer being built at the institute. Big opposition there. And he persuaded the government to fund the project also. While the idea of mathematicians using computers today seems like completely normal, back then... The mathematicians' tools were only chalk on the chalkboard and pen and paper. And so the mathematicians turned up their noses and refused to accept the idea of actual machinery-touching dirty engineers being allowed into the building to build this computer. It was just a a cultural uh, obstacle. Likewise, the humanists at the Institute, well, they didn't like the mathematicians, and they also didn't like the engineers, and they also didn't like the computer project. But it was because of von Neumann's influence, allowing him to be able to overcome all of these objections to have the computer built there. I don't know how to express the, the importance of uh, him being able to overcome these objections to get the computer project started in the first place. So if you're interested in how academic fields gatekeep and try to rank themselves in a hierarchy amongst other fields, you'll find this aspect of the book and story very fascinating. Another important point of the book is to show that von Neumann's computer was technically not the first computer. There were multiple teams around the world working on creating these analog computing devices during this time period. For example, around 1943, as the U.S. prepared to enter the war, the U.S. Army was running into operational issues with its, the firing of shells at targets from their massive guns. As the shells were able to be fired at faster rates and as targets also moved more quickly, they needed faster calculations for the shell trajectories for precise targeting. However, as noted in the book, a human computer working with a desk calculator took about 12 hours to calculate a single trajectory. With hundreds of trajectories required to produce a firing table, for any particular combination of shell and gun. So the army was falling behind in their traditional human computing way of calculating these firing tables. So a new project was started to develop what's called the ENIAC, or Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. This ENIAC project was completed in 1945, and it had 17,468 vacuum tubes and 1,500 relays, and it consumed 174 kilowatts of power and occupied a 33-by-55-foot room. In some sense, this was a personal computer because the humans had to work inside the computer. According to von Neumann, the ENIAC was the first complete automatic all-purpose digital electronic computer, and it was in constant use until 1955, where among other uses, it calculated the Feasibility of nuclear weapons. However, unlike the von Neumann architecture, right? von Neumann was involved in this project and he was picking up all of these best practices and ideas, the ENIAC design did not have the ability to store a program. Meaning, to run a program, the scientist who came up with the idea of the problem to solve, they had to get the engineers to actually wire up you know, with a plug board of wires and relays to actually implement the program. And so from then on, that's what the computer was. It it solved that specific problem. There was no way to store the program. If another scientist wanted to run a different program, then they would have to get with engineers to completely rewire the computer. So von Neumann was involved in many of these early computing projects and was able to improve on those early designs he realized that it would be impossible to anticipate future problems and needs of scientists. So rather than have the scientists have to get the engineer to wire up the computer each time, each time the scientist wanted to run a program, it'd be better to create a computing machine that could follow a small set of instructions and then have the scientist program using those instructions to solve the problem that they needed solved. Moreover, von Neumann, came up with the idea to have the program be able to be stored in a computer memory so that they could run the the program as, as often as they needed. von Neumann's computer essentially implemented a version of Alan Turing's universal machine. So building on work from Kurt Gödel, Turing designed a thought experiment that hypothesized a machine that read instructions and data on an infinite tape a paper tape that was fed through this hypothetical machine. On this tape were the instructions and data values. This hypothesized machine, by reading the tape, could follow the instructions and perform the calculations. This was a breakthrough result because he showed Turing that this one machine could compute any computable sequence. This was groundbreaking thought experiment. But it was just a thought experiment. However, Turing worked at the Institute with John von Neumann. So, they each influenced each other. Von Neumann's computer implementations influenced Turing's theoretical work, while von Neumann's computer was influenced by Turing's theoretical work. The result was von Neumann created a general-purpose computer with a stored program in the computer's memory acting like Turing's infinite tape. Though as a great innovation, von Neumann's memory was two-dimensional compared to Turing's one-dimensional paper tape. Von Neumann's computer used these cathode ray memory tubes. So one memory tube had a 32 by 32 matrix of bits or 1,024 bits per memory tube. And there were 40 of these memory tubes. So the actual computer, it looked like a 40-cylinder, you know, a huge 40-cylinder diesel engine with these tubes sticking out of it. Now, if you think about it, if you do the math, 40 tubes of 1,024 bits each tube, that amounts to 5 kilobytes of memory in this computer. Most advanced computer in the world at the time. So again, that's 5 kilobytes, not gigabytes, not megabytes five kilobytes. And today that's half a second of a MP3 song. So uh, by today's standards, (laughs) uh, we, we might think that such a computer is not even useful. What can, what can, what problems can you solve in five kilobytes of memory? But the scientists at the time, they made effective use of that memory and they tried to solve an amazing number and variety of problems. From the book, by mid-1953, five distinct sets of problems were running on their computer, the maniac, characterized by different scales in time. One, one set of problems was involved with nuclear explosions, which are over in microseconds. Two, shock and blast waves, those types of problems they were solving. Those range from microseconds to minutes. They were solving meteorology problems, and the timescale there ranges from minutes to years. And they were solving biological evolution problems, which range from years to millions of years. And finally, the fifth set of problems that they were solving was stellar evolution, and that timescale is from millions to billions of years. So while the motivation for the computer was to help build nuclear weapons, even that primitive computer, by today's standards, Help scientists research fundamental questions and problems across all these timescales, from the lifetime of a neutron in a nuclear explosion to the lifetime of the sun. Finally, I wanted to mention another reason influencing why von Neumann's design caught on. Von Neumann made the decision to forego patenting all these various innovations, designs, and algorithms in his computer project, which meant the von Neumann computer architecture could freely spread across the world amongst all these different uh, scientific research centers. But in doing so, this cemented his design as other teams and companies built computers using his architecture, including the computers that we use today. They are built using the von Neumann architecture. Now, there's a lot more in the book. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, Dyson, again, had access to resources and personal letters that no other historian had access to. So there are wonderful details and insights in the book about the culture and thinking of the people who were creating these first computers. But I wanted to mention one last detail that seems particularly fitting to us right now, as we see artificial intelligence technologies being implemented all around us, and as we, you know, as humans, struggle to understand our relationship with this new form of intelligence. In fact, just earlier this year, Google engineer Blake Lemoine was fired because he said Google's chatbot was showing human-like consciousness. Now, Alan Turing was also interested in understanding artificial intelligence. In fact, you may be familiar with the Turing test, which was the protocol Turing developed for knowing whether or not AI can simulate human intelligence. But back in Turing's time, people were particularly sensitive to these types of questions, the cultural sentiment of the times was that only God could create intelligence, not humans. And so we were treading on blasphemous territory and trying to create intelligent systems ourselves. So Turing had to navigate these kind of cultural and societal landmines. And so here's an interesting quote as an example of how he's trying to allay some of these you know, blasphemy uh, concerns. So here's the quote. In attempting to construct such machines, we should not be irreverently usurping his power of creating souls any more than we are in the procreation of children. Rather, we are, in either case, instruments of his will, providing mansions for the souls that he creates. So That's how he kind of got around this, this blasphemy argument. We are, in creating these intelligent computers and and artificial intelligence systems were creating mansions for the actual souls that God creates. Now, one day after George Dyson, he was giving a computer talk at Google about the history of computing, and Google in turn gave him a tour of all the engineering projects that were being done at Google, and Dyson realized that we're not actually just building Turing's mansions. Places like Google and Facebook and other, you know, Apple, they're building Turing's Cathedral. And so that's how we got the title for the book, Turing's Cathedral. But also the title relates to Dyson's goal of helping dispel the digital computer creation myth, that it was only Alan Turing who created the computer or that it was only John von Neumann who created the computer. Much like we say, oh, Edison created the light bulb. We... We often like our history simple like that. So setting aside the spiritual and meaning issues behind human intelligence, artificial intelligence and religion, if you think about how a literal cathedral is built, stone by stone, put into place by hundreds to thousands of different, often unnamed, uncredited individuals, once the cathedral is built, well, who built it? There's no one person who built that cathedral. So towards Dyson's goal, it's, Actually, not an important question, who exactly and precisely built the first computer. The more important question is, now that we have it, what problems are we going to solve with the computer? And while that sort of utilitarian question is interesting, the question of, okay, now that we have a computer, what problems can we solve? A more critical set of questions, perhaps, to those of us interested in the impact of technology on society is we're also interested in seeing how that computer in turn affects us. As we program the computer, how are we in turn affected? So, for example, while today the church is having a continuing decline in influence on cultural life compared to Turing's time, in a sense today we are instead filling that meaning gap in our lives with technology. And so getting a better understanding of this relationship to technology motivates a lot of work being done and... Uh, a lot of the work done in this techno slipstream podcast but that continued exploration we'll have to wait as we come to the end of our look at the book turing's cathedral written by george dyson i hope you enjoyed this dive into the creation myth of the digital computer you can see our next deep dive books over on our patreon page patreon.com slash kendall giles and you can also find their other writings and discussions Podcast episode transcripts, a link to the Pseudo Dragon newsletter, and more. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.